Our Father, we ask your blessing on our time in your word. And in asking for your blessing, what we're asking for is for transformation, for change, for discernment, for clarity with what this text means. We're asking for my words to be clear, to be oriented towards the truth, to be right, to not lead us astray in any way. And then we ask that as you do that, that we would be comforted by this word, made hopeful by this word, stimulated by this word, worshipful through this word, and again transformed by this word. This is the word of the living God. This is, this is your right, eternal, and true word. Might we respond accordingly to this word. We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. I saw another article on the topic this week. We are lonely people. The Wall Street Journal article even called baby boomers the loneliest generation, saying this, Baby boomers are aging alone more than any generation in U.S. history, and the resulting loneliness is a looming public health threat. About 1 in 11 Americans aged 50 and older lacks a spouse, partner, or living child, census figures and other research show. That amounts to about 8 million people in the United States without close kin, the main source of companionship in old age, and their share of the population is projected to grow. Policymakers are concerned that this will strain the federal budget and undermine baby boomers' health. Researchers have found that loneliness takes a physical toll and is as closely linked to early mortality as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day or consuming more than six alcoholic drinks a day. Loneliness is even worse for longevity than being obese or physically inactive. Along with financial issues, including high debt and declining pensions, social factors such as loneliness are another reason boomers are experiencing more difficult retirement years than previous generations. Quote, the effect of isolation is extraordinarily powerful, says Donald Berwick, former administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Quote, if we want to achieve health for our population, especially vulnerable people, we have to address loneliness. But you don't have to be over 50 and without a spouse and without children to be lonely. You can live in the downtown of a busy city and have 1,200 Facebook friends and be married with children and get grandchildren and still feel lonely and isolated. And the Christmas season tends to only exacerbate or extend that feeling of loneliness for most people. There might be a lot of reasons that we feel isolated and secluded, but certainly one of the reasons that we feel isolated is the weight of our problems in this world. We, we live in a world where, where there are problems. We live in a world where there is, 
where there are colds. We live in a world where there are there is cancer. We we live in a world where there are car accidents and things happen to us that we don't want and that are hard. We live in a world where there is sin. We live in a world where we sin against others and when we sin against others that has impact on us and against us. We live in a world where sinners sin against us. And we've acted righteously, but but we bear the weight of someone else's sin and anger and hostility against us. And, And in all of these problems, by and large, we have to carry them alone. And that just extends our feeling of loneliness. No, no one can take away that suffering that we endure on our own. And if, frankly, even in a healthy and loving and engaged church, we can still feel alone. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that God has provided an answer for our loneliness. It is, it is the helping comfort and the helping prayers of the Holy Spirit that ministers to us in our weakness, in our suffering, in our loneliness. And contemplating our sorrowful position, Paul will say in verses 26 and 27 that while the believer suffers, the Spirit is always the ever-present helper. So we live in this world where there is ongoing suffering, but even while we are experiencing ongoing suffering, there is beside us and with us and in us a spirit who is helping us and praying with us and for us. In this passage, Paul will open our eyes to see three characteristics of the spirit that minister to us while we are suffering. While the believer suffers, the Spirit is the ever-present helper. What is the Spirit like that comes alongside of us to help us? The first thing Paul will tell us at the beginning of verse 26 is the Spirit's necessity. The Spirit's necessity. Let me just read verses 26 and 27 and then we'll look at them more carefully. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness... For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 26 tells us that the Spirit is a necessity. The Holy Spirit is a necessity because we are weak. Notice that he says we have a weakness. The Spirit also helps our weakness. We are, we are weak people. Now that word weakness can refer to, to just physical weakness. So for instance, in John chapter 11, when the apostle writes about the account of Lazarus, he says in verse 4, when Jesus heard this, heard about Lazarus, he said, this sickness, this weakness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. So when he talks about the sickness of Lazarus, he's not talking about anything moral going on. He's just talking about the physical infirmity, the weakness, the frailty, the illness of his human body. And that's a, that's a common way for this word to be used. But the word can also refer to spirit 
spiritual weakness. So, for instance, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 will say of himself, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That is, I, I came to you not just, not just physically weak, but spiritually weak. I didn't have all of the answers. I didn't have all of the authority. I, I didn't have everything that you needed from me spiritually. I wasn't completely spiritually mature to give you everything that you needed to have. And for instance, Paul will say something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. After talking about all the things that happened to him in life, he says in 2 Corinthians 11.30, If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness, my, my spiritual weakness, my, my frailties and my inabilities. But the word is not just used about, about physical situation and about just our, our spiritual weakness and inability in general. It's also used to talk about our spiritual weakness that leads to sin. So, for instance, in Romans chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. That's our word, weakness of the flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So in that verse, he's talking about weakness that results in presenting the members of our body, our physical bodies, to impurity and lawlessness. So doing things that are unrighteous and unpleasing to God. So, so weakness is not just my, my spiritual immaturity, but it is indeed my very sin itself. It's also used in a very similar way in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself, speaking about the Messiah, he himself took our infirmities, our weaknesses, and carried away our diseases. He's talking there again about our, our sin and the specific things that we have done in violation against God. And Paul's point is that we are weak. Physically, spiritually, and not just weak, but that we are prone to going against God. And, and notice that he says this is something about everyone. We all are in this category. He says in the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. And Paul includes himself in that category. It's not just something that, that you are weak, but Paul is not, or, or that there is some category of people that are not weak. No, even someone as strong, as bold, as wise, as mature as the Apostle Paul still is someone who is encumbered by the flesh and is spiritually weak. Says one commentator, every believer lives his whole life in conditions of weakness. We all need the Spirit's work. And notice also that the Apostle does not say that the Spirit removes our weaknesses. Notice he says he helps our weakness. He, he does not take it away. The sense is even that, that he keeps us in the weakness. He could remove it, but he does not do that. Why? Why does the Spirit of God not remove our weaknesses if He could remove our weaknesses so that He can daily, day by day, moment by moment, demonstrate our need for Him 
and his adequacy for us. In fact, this is, this is the very testimony of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Immediately after saying in verse 30 of chapter 11, I will boast of what pertains to my weaknesses, he talks about the fact that, that he had petitioned God to take away some of his weakness. Three times he said, 2 Corinthians 12, 8, three times I implored the Lord that this this messenger of Satan would leave me. And God denied him. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians 12, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. In other words, you won't know God's power until you are weak. And your weakness helps you to experience God's power that you could not experience in any other way. So Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I want the power of Christ, so I will boast about my weakness. Verse 10, Therefore I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I am only strong in Christ when I am weak in myself. And if the weakness is taken away, I can't know Christ's strength. I want Christ's strength. Bring on weakness. Now, that's an antithetical message, isn't it? And so Paul says in first Corinthians, or excuse me, in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit helps our weakness. He, he doesn't take it away. Friends, we are prone to taking, excuse me, we are prone to begging the Lord to take away our problems and our weaknesses. And then when He doesn't, we're prone to grumbling and complaining and being disgruntled when it is the very purpose of God to keep us in that weakness, so that we will know the surpassing power of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ working in us. We we need the weakness to experience the sufficiency of Christ and the Spirit. Now, Paul here points to a particular kind of weakness that we have. He is saying we are weak, broadly and generally, but he's also pointing to a very particular kind of weakness. And the weakness is, we do not know what to pray. Notice what he says. The Spirit helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should. What Paul here actually says is not how to pray. That, uh, that's my translation. Some of your translations will say something like, what to pray. And that's actually what the word is. The word is um, that we don't know what to pray as we should. Now, we, we know that the Christ himself taught us how to pray, right? Remember, remember the Lord's Prayer? Um, the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so Matthew chapter 6, Jesus explains, this is how you pray. So, so we know how to pray What Paul is pointing to here is that we don't necessarily know what the content of our prayer should be. So how should we pray about a given circumstance? And and what should be the words that we use in order to pray? We just don't know what should be 
in our prayers. And, and particularly, Paul says, we don't know what to pray as we should. And the word should refers to something that is necessary. There, there is, there is a necessary content to our prayers. And Paul says, we don't know that. In every, in every circumstance, there is a particular way to pray. And then we sometimes, often, are ignorant about what that should be. In fact, Paul will use a, a similar phrase at the end of verse 27, talking about the prayer of the Spirit of God, where he says, He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, or more literally, according to God. In other words, the Spirit prays according to God's will. He always knows what God's will is in a given situation, and that's the way he prays. And Paul says, we don't, we don't know that. It's necessary for us to pray according to God's will, but, but we, don't, we don't know that oftentimes. Well, why, why don't we know what it is to pray God's will? Well, partly we don't know simply because we are finite we don't have the infinite knowledge and understanding of God. Uh, Moses refers to this in Deuteronomy chapter 29. He says in verse 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us belong to us and our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. In other words, God has revealed himself to us in the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and all the other books that follow. So we have God's revelation. We know how to respond. And Paul says we have this written down law so that we might observe it, so that we might obey it, so that we might be transformed by it. But but having this book doesn't mean we know everything that there is to know about God and His will. So Moses says at the beginning of that verse, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are certain things about our lives, certain things about our circumstances, certain things about our situations that, that God hasn't revealed and, and we don't know. And so we don't know how to pray simply because we're, we're not infinite. We're, we're finite and, dare I say it this way, we're, we're ignorant. We, we just don't know. You, know. you know what this is like and somebody comes and gives you a job offer and you say... Well, this job has these advantages and this job has these, have these advantages and I don't know how to pray because I don't know which one would be best for me to take. I don't know which one would fit God's plan and God's purposes for my life. And there's a second reason why we don't know how to pray and that is simply because we still have the flesh and we still sin. Remember, Romans chapter 8 follows Romans chapter 7. And what's in Romans chapter 7? But this whole battling with the flesh, right? I'm, I'm doing the things that I don't want to do and the things that I do want to do, I don't do those things. That's, that's the tension with the flesh and that's the wrestling with the flesh. And that wrestling with the flesh will pervert our desires as well as pervert our actions and it will distort our praying. We don't know the right thing to ask for simply because we have the wrong desires and we're headed the wrong direction simply because of the power of the flesh. Notice that Paul doesn't say that we can eradicate this lack of knowledge. He, He seems to assume that this is something that will always be with us. He says we do not know, present tense, how to pray as we should. This is going to be something that is ongoing. 
There will always be things in your life of which you are ignorant. And friends, that is exactly why the Spirit of God is necessary. The third thing I want you to notice from the beginning of this verse is we have a weakness. We don't know what to pray, but friends, we still must pray. Paul Paul does not say um, we don't know how to pray, so because you don't know how to pray, just don't pray. No. When you don't know what to pray, pray anyway. In fact, in fact, isn't it, isn't it the biblical understanding that we are always going to be pursuing fellowship with God and, and pursuing intimacy with Him through prayer? If you just turn over a couple of pages to Romans chapter 12, he'll say in Romans chapter 12 about how the believer is to conduct himself in the body of Christ. He says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. So I don't know how to pray. Well, I'll just stop praying. No, 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 no. You, you don't know how to pray. You don't know what to pray. You need to practice. Be devoted to it. Pursue it. Persevere in it. Paul will say something similar in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but occasionally when you feel like it, when you think you're particularly in the Spirit of God, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Okay, I see one head shaking no. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything... By prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. The sense is when you don't know how to pray, you must pray anyway. But as you're praying, understand there may be some things wrong with the prayer as it's going up. So another principle that applies here is pray with humble submission. One, one way we do that is, is we pray saying at the end of the prayer, in Jesus' name. Now, in Jesus' name is not a code word that means you really need to give me what I want. It is kind of a code word. The code word is, I'm ignorant and I don't know what I'm talking about. And I need you to align my heart to you. Because what I really want is not what I want. I want what you want and I want your will. So when I pray in Jesus' name, I'm praying for your will. Isn't this how Jesus himself taught us to pray? Matthew chapter 6, he says in verse 10, this is the way we ought to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, so there is a will of God that's being revealed and enacted in heaven. And in the same way that God's will is being perfectly accomplished in heaven, that's what I want on earth. I want on earth in my life God's perfect will to be accomplished. That, that takes submission, doesn't it? It's not about what I want. It's about what God wants and what Christ wants. Now, Paul says we're going to be ignorant about what to pray. We, we don't always know what to pray. 
But that doesn't mean we need to stay ignorant at all times. There will be a sense in which we will always carry around with us some of that ignorance, but we can, we can begin to conform our hearts to God's will and, and be changed in a particular way. And the best way I know to do that is to learn to pray by praying scripture. I, I often say, um, people will interact with me about a sermon. And I say, look, I've got one job on Sunday morning. This book is inerrant. My job when I'm talking about it is don't mess it up. It's the perfect revealed will of God. If it's the perfect, inerrant, revealed will of God, that means if I take this book and pray it back to God, unless I'm praying with distorted motives... I'm going to be aligning my heart to his will. And so you might take, you can take any passage and do this. Um, interestingly, I was thinking about, um, about this this, uh, this week. And all three, all three out of the four psalms that, that we read this morning in our scripture reading, three of those four psalms start with a petition and start with an acknowledgement of, of need for prayer. So, so we can sometimes take those prayers and, and just pray them back to God. This is what I need and pray that scripture back to God. Colossians chapter 1 also has a prayer. Um, scripture, in fact, is just filled with prayers and we can just take those things and reiterate them back to the Lord. So we say, I don't know what to pray in this situation, but I know this is, this is a prayer of God that might be rightly applied to this circumstance. So Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this, verses 9 and 10. I won't read the whole prayer, just a portion of it. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now you can take that prayer and in your circumstance, you pray it back to God. What does that look like? Well, the best way I know how to explain how that looks is to actually do it. So, this is weird, but in the middle of the sermon, I'm going to ask you to bow your head and let's pray this prayer back to God. This is the kind of thing you might do. Our Father, we need prayer. We need, we need communion with you and, and we need to learn how to pray. Because we agree with the Apostle Paul that there are many circumstances in our lives where, where we're just ignorant. We don't know what to do. We don't know which job to take. We don't know which school to go to. We don't know how to reconcile that relationship. We struggle in our fight against sin. We don't know how to, to fight against the sin. We don't know what to pray. We don't, we don't know how to ask so we need your help. And Father, would you, would you then fill us, even as Paul says in this, in this section, would you fill us with the knowledge of your will? 
Would you make us to understand your purposes for us? Would you help us to understand the moral portions of the equation in the equation of the decision that we're going to make? Would you, would you help us to understand those things that are, that are amoral, that, that there's no morality that depends on them, but just simply what our heart that is in tune to you desires? Help us to understand what will best honor and please you. And so, Father, would you lead us to moral clarity about our circumstance and our situation. And Father, we ask this so that we would have spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding so that, so that we know how to operate not just in this world, but that we connect everything in this world to you. And Father, in our f- physical illness, what we would pray for is, is for physical healing but that may not be your will for us at this moment. So what we really ask for is that you would give us discernment in our physical suffering so that we would have spiritual wisdom and spiritual discernment to walk with you in a way that is worthy of you. Father, as we, as we lay in a hospital bed, what we really want above all else is not to have the physical ailment removed but we want to honor you with our words and our deeds. We want to be transformed into your nature and your character. We we want, as Paul says, to please you. Would you help us to please you in this circumstance? Father, we want to bear fruit for every good work. We, we, We want to produce the good fruit of Christ's righteousness. We want to bear the fruit of the Spirit working in us. Would you, would you do that in us? Would you, Would you take the circumstance of our life and help us to do that? And Father, in all these things, we want to increase in the knowledge of you. We want to know you more fully. We want to know the fullness of the eternal Godhead in our lives. And so, Father, as we're making these decisions, as we're wrestling through these things, as we're carrying these weights and burdens, would you help us to know you in these circumstances? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friend, that's what, that's what you do. You take the Word of God, you read the Word of God, you take in the Word of God, and then you pray the Word of God back to God, asking Him to produce that work in you. And the only way you can do that is through the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is necessary. The Spirit of God is necessary to do that because you can't, Do that on your own. You are inadequate. You are weak. Let me say this as politely and kindly as I can. You and I are incompetent. We just can't. We need the Spirit of God to do this. And oh friend, what is it that He does? He comes alongside to help us. The Spirit helps us. Notice verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. That is, He comes alongside and He lends a hand to us. The sense is that at the very moment of our weakness, the Spirit comes alongside and works with us, giving us exactly what we need before it's too late. When we are strong, when we are weak, He is strong and He compensates for and overwhelms every weakness that leads to inadequate and misinformed and misstated and even unrighteous prayers. We don't know how to pray. We, 
we pray wrongly and the Spirit comes alongside to help those wrong prayers. Now, the question is exactly, what does the Spirit do to help us? Notice he says in verse 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. How does he help our weaknesses in the same way? In the same way as what? Well, there's been a lot of discussion about what that little phrase in the same way means. I think very simply, Paul is going back and he's looking at all the groanings that have happened as he's looked at the difficulties of life in which we live. So we saw in verse 22, the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. Creation is, is groaning. Creation is, is creaking. Creation is, in a sense, grumbling, wanting, pleading, praying for the redemption of mankind so that when mankind is redeemed, creation will also be redeemed. But not only is creation groaning, but verse 23, not only this, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. We also groan, don't we? I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you said, Lord, I am sick of my sin. I just want it gone. I I want... I want the pervasiveness of my battle of my flesh removed from me. I want to be changed. That's a prayer for redemption. Lord, we we want the culmination of your salvation. So creation is groaning, wanting salvation. We are groaning, wanting salvation. Now notice verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps in that He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, Creation is groaning, wanting its redemption. We are groaning, wanting our redemption. Don't go and say, well, the Spirit is groaning, wanting His redemption too. No. The Spirit isn't wanting our rede- wanting His redemption. The Spirit is wanting our redemption. The Spirit is, is groaning alongside of creation and the Spirit is groaning alongside us anticipating the redemption that will come through salvation. And if you notice that the groaning actually is an act of intercession, the Spirit, verse 26, Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the Spirit is not praying for Himself, but the Spirit is praying for us. The Spirit sees our circumstances. The Spirit sees our difficulties. The Spirit sees our trials. The Spirit hears our inadequate prayers. And He says, Terry needs some help. Let me intercede and go before the throne of God on His behalf. And notice that the Spirit is doing this constantly. The Spirit Himself intercedes. That's a present tense. That means it is something that is ongoing. The Spirit doesn't just say, uh, well, there's one prayer for Terry. I've got too much else to do, and so I'm going to move on to somebody else. He's on his own. No, the Spirit is constantly interceding on our behalf. He's always interceding to us, to the Father. And notice that this intercession for us, the Spirit's prayer for us, is a perfect prayer. End of verse 27. He intercedes for the saints according to God. That is, He knows what God's will is. And that's what He prays for us. 
He prays for us according to the perfect, loving, best will for us. So I picture it this way. Terry has something hard going on in his life and he goes to the Father and he prays asking for that situation to be changed or removed or whatever it is. He makes a petition and the Spirit hears it and he goes, Oh, no, 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 Terry, don't ask for that. Kind of like Christmas time, you know. Parents talking to kids, what do you want for Christmas? Oh, we want this. Oh, no, don't ask for this. What you really want is a textbook to be trained. No. The Spirit says, I've got something far better for you. Let me take that prayer and let me just, let me just tweak it. Let me change that prayer and then let me take that prayer that's changed that now is a prayer that is aligned perfectly with God's will. Let me take that prayer to Him. Now, if you're listening carefully, you're noting that the Spirit is interceding for us. But the Spirit isn't our only intercessor, is He? We also have the Son interceding for us. Just go down to the bottom of the page, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Is there someone who is making a charge against you? Is there someone who is making an accusation against you? Yes, we know that the accuser of the brethren, Satan, is perpetually going before the throne of God and saying, I see Terry down there. God, do you see Terry down there? Do you see what he's doing? How can you call him a Christian? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Satan would condemn us. But Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. So Satan would accuse us of not being believers and Jesus Christ said He is righteous not on the basis of what He has done but He is righteous based on the fact that He has trusted in Me and My perfect righteousness has been imputed to Me. His salvation is secure and safe. So friend, watch what's happening. There is a Savior the second person of the Trinity who stands at the throne of God who defends your salvation. That Savior was on earth with us for a time. He was with the disciples. Matthew 1 talks about the coming of Jesus. Why did He come? Call Him Emmanuel because He is God with us. He came to be with us. But He left. And in leaving... He sends the third person of the Trinity to be with us. And that third person of the Trinity is interceding for us here. So in heaven, we have an intercessor right beside God's throne. And on earth, we have an intercessor with us friend in us taking our prayers to the throne of God 
And friend, I want you to notice something else. The Son of God is at the throne, interceding, praying for us, guarding us, keeping our salvation. The Spirit of God is interceding for us and they are both appealing to the Father. And the Father is answering the requests. My friend, you have the entire triune God working on your behalf in your problem, in your situation to protect you and accomplish everything you need. The Son protecting your salvation, the Spirit protecting your sanctification, both of them going to the Father in the perfect will of the Father and the Father answering them, yes, I will do what you're asking on behalf of the one for whom you are asking it. So when we don't know how to pray, we can be perfectly content that the one who does know how to pray is actually praying for us. We can pray, Lord, I don't know what to do or what to ask, but I know the Spirit knows. And so so I trust Him to take this request and make it right before you so that you can accomplish your purposes in my life. And notice... Notice what these requests are. It says, verse 26, He intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. That is, the groanings are wordless. They, the groanings and the intercession is made without words because they don't need to be spoken because the Spirit knows the mind of God and, and God knows the mind of the Spirit. That's verse 27. He who searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints. Father knows the Spirit's mind. The Spirit knows the Father's mind. They don't even have to say anything. They know. Oh, friend, this is tremendous comfort for the believer. There's perfect intimacy and perfect communication, a knowledge between the Spirit and the Father so that no prayer request is ever mishandled. Now, we mishandle things all the time, don't we? I went to pick up a package the other day, something I had ordered from a store, and, and I pulled up to the, you know, the parking spot where they bring in the stuff out that you've ordered online, and, and the gal brought out this package, and the package was just shredded. Now, fortunately, what was in that side that package, it's, it's not indestructible, but it's pretty, pretty close to being indestructible. And so the package was just absolutely shredded. It's like, how can we mess up this package as much as we want? And I'm, I know the people at the post office don't dance on things, but I'm, I'm suspecting that every once in a while they kind of toss things around and dance on them. And I, they, they did on this box. Nothing ever gets mishandled between the Spirit and the Father. I've told Regine, I don't know how many times... When I have misspoken, I don't know if you all ever misspeak in your communication in your marriage, but I've been prone to doing that over the years. And, and now I just kind of grin and just say, um, listen, listen to what I mean, not what I say. <laughs> Never happens with the Godhead. No request is ever mishandled. Every request that the Spirit makes to the Father is perfectly made And it is answered with perfect timing and with perfect grace.
The Spirit is necessary. The Spirit helps. But does the Spirit accomplish what the Spirit set out to do? I want you to notice, thirdly, the third characteristic of the Spirit, the Spirit's effectiveness. This is verse 27. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. There's one who searches hearts. There's one who searches the hearts of mankind, and that's God. And He searches and He knows us perfectly. We, we know that God does this. First Samuel chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance, the appearance of Saul when they're getting ready to, to select a king. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees, for a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So the Lord not only hears and sees what we do, but He penetrates into the inner man so that He sees everything that's going on inside of us. But it's not just the Father that knows that. Even the Son knows that. It says in John chapter 2, Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them, to the religious leaders, for He knew all men, and because He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Jesus Christ knew what was in the heart of mankind. He, he also can see inside what's going on in there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, speaking about the Spirit of God, it says, for, the, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So the Spirit searches and knows and understands all things, all people, all men, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit all know all things that are about us. So Paul's point is, he who searches the hearts of people knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Now, think about it this way. Guys, how, how helpful would this be? How helpful would it be if you knew exactly what your wife was thinking in every given moment? Wouldn't that be helpful? Okay, well, there's one of you that agrees with me. I think it would be helpful. If I could know what Regine was thinking, now I can come alongside and help and we'll have better communication. But the point is, if I knew what she was thinking, well, then I would know what I'm thinking too, right? I'd understand my own mind and my own heart. And that's Paul's point here. If, if God can look into the hearts of people, and understand them perfectly, then, then God looks into the other members of the Trinity and He knows what they're thinking as well. The Godhead knows the mind of the Godhead. He knows Himself perfectly. And, and because He knows perfectly, He knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Notice what He says in verse 27 because he intercedes for the saints. That word because can be translated in a number of different ways, and I think it's best to take it not as a cause or a reason, but as informative about what he's praying. So let's translate it this way. What the mind of the Spirit is, that he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, the Spirit intercedes and God knows the mind of the Spirit and knows every request that the Spirit is making on our behalf. He doesn't 
just know what the Spirit wants for us, but He also joyfully does everything that the Spirit asks. Why? Because the Spirit asks according to God or according to the will of God. Every request that the Spirit makes on our behalf, every transformation of our prayers that we pray that the Spirit fixes on the way to the throne are in perfect alignment with God's will. And if it is the Spirit of God that's making the request of God the Father and they are of one mind and all of this is God's will, then we know that the Father will always say yes to the Spirit. The Spirit never takes a prayer to the throne of God and He goes, nah, not this time. No. Every time the Spirit asks, because it's in perfect alignment with the will of God, He always says yes. That means that everything we ask from God will be answered perfectly, friend. We may ask unknowingly, We may ask unwisely, we may ask sinfully or imperfectly, but every answer we receive is God's best and perfect provision for us. There's another aspect to the Holy Spirit that's revealed in these verses, and that is that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's a real person. He's not a force. He's not a feeling. He's not an impersonal power. He is a person who can hear and speak He has longings and He has desires. He has a mind and knows and understands. He has fellowship and He has relationship. He is, in every sense, a real person. He doesn't have a body like we do, but He is a person nonetheless. And friend, that's not just a theological truth. That means that because the Spirit is a person, we can have a personal relationship with Him and we can have fellowship and communion with Him. There is one time that that's not true, however. There is a time when when we won't have fellowship with Him and He won't hear our prayers. Psalm 66, 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If someone has not asked Christ to atone for their sins, if someone is not a follower of Jesus Christ, if someone is not in Christ and doesn't have the Holy Spirit of God, then the Spirit will not hear his prayer. The Spirit will not take that prayer and perfect it on the way to the throne of God. You're alone. You are really alone without Christ. Now there's good news here. And that is if you confess your sin... And if you repent of your sin and turn away from your sin and you turn to following Jesus Christ in faith, He will forgive your sin and He will transform your life so you can live obediently to Him and give you the Spirit of God so that the Spirit of God can live in you and take all of your requests and fix them on the way to God so that God will answer them perfectly. Now friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, You have no comfort that the Lord hears your prayers. But if you repent, you can be comforted that He will hear you and He will respond to those prayers. We sometimes will also lament about our our unanswered prayer. God didn't answer my prayer. 
or we will lament, God, God told me no. And, and we, we presume that when God says no, it's bad, no, bad news. Friend, listen carefully. When God says no to my prayer, we must remember that He has said yes to the Spirit's prayer. And if He has said no at this time, that means at this time, in this moment, in this circumstance, what I have just prayed is not God's best for me. He has something better for me. And it is that to which He is saying yes. Luther was absolutely right. I think this is on your outline this morning when he said, it is not a bad thing, but a very good sign if the opposite of what we pray for appears to happen. Just as it is not a good sign for our prayers to eventuate in the fulfillment of all that we ask for, this is so because the counsel and will of God far excel our counsel and our will. He knows better. And when he tells you no, and he says yes to the Spirit, that is his very best for you in that circumstance. And friend, he has said no to your request to make you content with the Spirit's request on your behalf. We can trust when he says no, that the Spirit has prayed something different and better for us, and we do not need to be anxious about the no that we have received. Let me, let me just give you a challenge. I want you to think this afternoon about one thing that you have prayed that God has said no to. And then I want you to pray with thanksgiving, acknowledging that He said yes to the Spirit's prayer for you in that circumstance. Pray with gratitude and contentment that God has answered the Spirit's prayers in the best way for you. And friend, this is also a means of instruction for us. As God answers us no, it tells us what His will is. It leads us to an understanding of of what He would have in us in this particular circumstance. It shapes our will. It shapes our hearts. A number of years ago, the prominent pastor and theologian James Boyce was diagnosed with liver cancer that was quite advanced. As he began to get treatment, he became very weak from the treatment, was unable to preach. But but on one morning, he had enough strength that he was able to go to the church and just give the call to worship. And as he gave the call to worship, before he read the scripture, he he encouraged the people to pray. What did he say about their prayers? He said this, Above all, I would say, pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying Himself in history and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified Himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ and it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though He could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my Father ten legions of angels for my defense? But He didn't do that. And yet that, the cross, is where God is most glorified. And friend, that means the thing... That, that God is glorified through things like our illness that remain unhealed. God is glorified in those things. 
And then Boyce reminded them of God's goodness. It's possible, he said, isn't it, to conceive of God as sovereign and yet indifferent? God's in charge, but he doesn't care. But it is not that. God is not only the one who is in charge. God is also good. Everything he does is good. And what Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 says is that we have the opportunity by the renewal of our minds, that is how we think about these things, actually to prove what God's will is. And when it says his good, pleasing, and perfect will, and then it says his good, pleasing, and perfect will, is that good, pleasing, and perfect to God? Yes, of course. But the point of it is that it's good, pleasing and perfect to us. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you change it, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So that's the way we want to accept it and move forward. And then who knows what God will do. That was the last time that James Boyce ever spoke to his congregation in public. Those were his final words to his congregation as mere weeks later he was at the throne of God in glory. So what will we we say? Was it bad that God answered his prayers? No. Was it bad for his family, his wife, his children, his grandchildren? Was it bad for his congregation? Was it bad for the church at large that that gained much from the ministry and pen of this man? No. It was good. It was God's best and it was God's grace. Friends, friends, we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray. We don't know what to ask. But we know that when we ask, we have the Spirit of God who takes that request and makes it right. And everything He asks of the Father, He will grant to us for our good. Friend, you don't know what to pray. But the Spirit does. And He prays. For you. You rest in that. You find contentment in that. And you find joy in that. He prays for you. Our Father, we acknowledge that our prayers are weak, inadequate, distant, infrequent and we acknowledge and we trust that the Spirit of God can take everything that is associated with the weakness of our prayers and make it right so that we will always receive for you from you exactly what we need and exactly what is best. Oh, Father, would you use this message to do two things. Would you use this message to make us prayerful? For we do not pray with wisdom that is infinite and we do not pray enough. And so, Father, would you compel us to pray 
because of what we have heard in this message this morning. And then, and then secondly, would you use this message to conform our prayers so that we learn to pray more rightly? We acknowledge we pray with ignorance. But Father, would you, would you transform that ignorance and, and form the Word of God in our lives so that we learn to pray rightly? And then would you give us contentment and rest that when we are praying, that there is one who is praying for us, who is infinitely and eternally wise, accomplishing all his good purposes for us. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.